As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of FedWatch the best macro show in Bitcoin. From a contrarian perspective, we cover macro, Bitcoin, U.S. economic data, global economic data, central bank news, all of that you get here on FedWatch. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, CK. How are you doing, CK? Doing good. Great intro. And yeah, I mean, personally, I think the most directionally correct show uh, in Bitcoin, uh, but obviously we're a little biased here. We, we like what we do. And uh, I think that we do put out some great information uh, and we got a lot to talk about today, uh, diving a lot into the data. And I know that uh, we're going to cover the U.S., we're going to cover Europe. Uh, we are going to be covering a lot. So uh, Ansel, as usual, is keeping the audience up to date with everything that is happening in Bitcoin, macro, everything that is pertinent. And Honestly, Ansel, uh, you've been doing amazing daily content every single weekday on your Telegram and on podcasts. I have been absolutely loving it. Uh, I've been a, a big Ansel Lindner fan for a long time, uh, and you're dropping a lot of contrarian opinions. If you want to stay ahead, if you want to, of the noise of the herd, you know, Bitcoiners are sharp, but you can stay ahead of Bitcoiners too. I think Ansel is one of the best people to be listening to. FedWatch, obviously, one of the best shows to be listening to every single Thursday we stream live on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, Y'all, I'm shilling right now. I'm shilling the show. <laughs> I got to show the real show, which is the Bitcoin Conference. Bitcoin 2023, May 18th through the 20th. We are working incredibly hard. And this is already the biggest conference that is going to be happening in 23. It is going to be the Bitcoin reality, the Bitcoin universe coming together in person, live in Miami. You can't beat it. Bitcoin Twitter in real life. Noster in real life. You can meet me, you can meet Ansel, you can meet all of your favorites. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Check out our speaker list. Check out the sponsor list. Best place to get a job. If you want to get a job in the industry, best place to get a job at Bitcoin 2023. You can quote me on that one. Tons of companies have hired as well, formed, funded at the Bitcoin conference, Bitcoin 2019, 2021, 2022. Uh, it is an establishment in the Bitcoin space. You got to be there. Don't miss it. Bitcoin 2023. All right, Ansel. I mean, yes. what's the promo code? Promo code is uh, BM Live. So use code BM Live to save 10%. Ticket prices are going up, so don't miss out. Ansel, what's yes. up, man? Let's get into yeah, it. Yeah, we, we put the macro in, in uh, macroeconomics. We don't really get down into the micro weeds like a lot of people do. We look at things from a big picture and look at big picture items which is what we're going to do today. Yeah, ISM data from the U.S., jobs data, 
uh, U.S. trade deficit data. So we're going to take a look at that stuff that's coming up. Um, I want to tell everyone watching on YouTube or Rumble, like, subscribe. Make sure you're liked and subscribed to this stream right here. And we come, yeah, we come every Thursday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern uh, live. So oh, from my side, you mentioned my stream. Yeah, you guys, I got a new YouTube channel. Woo -woo. Got a new YouTube channel. So you guys can subscribe to my personal channel over at BTC Market Update. BTC Market Update is the new YouTube channel. Uh, join the Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Uh, that is where I do live streams usually every weekday. So it's going well and hope to grow the reach of these contrarian takes. So that's all my plugs up front. Uh, CK, do you want to jump into, let's jump into the Bitcoin chart first. How about that? Love it. Love it. All right. And I've, I've been bearish. I've been saying there's more uh, ecosystem <laughs> damage. There's more yeah. business and uh, risk kind of like unfolding there. Um, and you've been more bullish, uh, which is a complete opposite to how we were both feeling when it was a bull run. A so, year ago. Um, yeah. yeah, a year ago. And I think you were right to be a little bit bearish, especially uh, as we were off uh, the all-time high. You know, I kept thinking that maybe uh, there is, you know, an extended rally. The bull market will extend. But, you know, after the beginning of the, of the spring, it really fell apart uh, this year. Um, and got really, really negative. So you were definitely right there. Um, but again, I, I would love to look at the chart, see what you think, and then uh, give you my take. Uh, because, you know, one of the benefits of being at Bitcoin Magazine is the information flow that you kind of get from the rest of the industry. So happy to uh, drop as much of that as possible here uh, for the listeners. Absolutely. All right, let's bring up the first chart. This is the Bitcoin chart. I have on here some... Well, I changed my rocket from red to black because I thought maybe we shouldn't have a red rocket on on the the the, the chart. But anyway, red rocket, red rocket. <laughs> so uh, as you can see, I also added the moving averages. Orange line is two hundred day. Green line is fifty day. It was the first time we closed over the fifty day moving average yesterday, but we are kind of on a red candle today. So we'll see how we. Uh, end up at the end of this week, maybe uh, compared to the the fifty day. But the fifty day is seen as the fifty yard line, like in football, right? If you're in bullish territory or bearish territory, uh, so this this kind of a big thing. I also highlighted a couple different sections of this chart, and you can see that compared to that fifty day, it looks kind of similar to what we were experiencing back in October. We did have that break out, but then the FTX crash right after that. So, you know. Um, Let's see if we do something similar to what happened back in October minus the FTX crash. So that this is, do you have any thoughts on this chart? I have one more with volatility for Bitcoin. Uh, the 200-day average for me is uh, the way that I defined a good price. So as you all can see, we are firmly in stacking territory and there's definitely some resistance there with the 200-day moving average. Really interesting to see us uh, so tightly coupled with the 50-day moving average and hopefully breaking up above it uh, is a good sign. Uh, but again, I think that narrative and the the actual ecosystem reality, uh, the jobs and the businesses and the players in the industry, uh, we are still kind of in a, a death spiral with many mm. of them kind of like holding out and kicking the can on 
potentially eventual insolvency and, and issues there. So uh, we're seeing a lot of noise with Silvergate just today firing 40%. Uh, that became public this morning. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, uh, DCG is under an incredible amount of heat. And we're seeing uh, the legal proceedings with both Celsius and, uh, and uh, Sam Bankman Freed continuing to progress bad news for people who left their funds in Celsius. You don't own those funds anymore. You were you actually granting them uh, to Celsius and the, the Celsius trust now on, owns those. That was a new uh, you know, decision happening. And all of that, it, in my opinion, is, is very negative for the price and very negative for the narrative. And I think that you know, people are going to take advantage of that opportunity to beat up on Bitcoin while it's down. It's a buying opportunity. You know, this is ultimately bullish as more and more coins uh, get distributed at lower prices to strong hands and convicted hands. Uh, but, you know, that's that's personally why I think like this resistance is going to continue to pile on. Yeah. And Chris, producer Chris just said Genesis fired 30 percent of their staff. So that's uh, yeah, lots of firings going on. I know the, the miners are having a hard time uh, hiring and, and uh, keeping their staff. So that, yeah, this could be just a, maybe the next shoe to drop is letting people go. Maybe the industry needs to downsize here uh, on the staff a little bit before. I mean, we it can, is. <laughs> yeah. Before it we has been go up. So yeah, I have one more chart here and that is the volatility. The volatility in Bitcoin has been extremely low. The last three times that it's, or the last two times it's been this low was uh, post-COVID crash and post-having uh, got pretty much tied this at this uh, volatility level. And then you can see what happened there at the end of 2020 into 2021. But we also, if we go back to the next one, uh, back in 2018, at the end of 2018, oh, no, Chris, go, yeah, uh, at the end of 2018, that was right before the big crash. So hopefully we have a repeat of 2020 and not a repeat of 2018. But all in all, this is an extremely low period in volatility. So, and uh, like I've said in the past, if you take out 22 days in 2022, the price, you know, all, all those, the big crash days, uh, the price has been pretty much flat all year long. So imagine what the volatility would be yeah. if we did that. That was a take from your daily show, right? Where you're saying if you just subtract those kind of big industry events that uh, turned into severe market selling pressure, yeah. um, you know, we, we could potentially be at all time highs right now. So, I mean, uh, that could be true. I, I don't know necessarily uh, if, you know, we would be oh, sideways yeah. and up if we were at 50K or 40K um, at higher prices. But uh, who knows? It's impossible to really speculate that accurately. Uh, but at the same time, the, you know, you could argue that a big reason why we were at whatever price we were at was because of the leverage and because a lot mm -hmm. of the speculative and uh, honestly just unjustified uh, uh, degenerate behavior that a lot of these companies were involved in. Uh, but ultimately, you know, all of this, it doesn't matter. It's going to be a blip on the radar. But, uh, you know, in the short to medium term, uh, it, it does affect the price for sure, especially the marginal price uh, for those that are, you know, buying and selling on the market. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Um, of course, I'm not saying that we can just uh, do a one to one comparison if those days weren't there, because there's so much uh, 
to take into account. I, when you're talking there, I was thinking of all, the altcoin side of the house, like these derivatives, like credit default swaps, you know, bets on top of bets on top of bets. It's a, it, it's famous from the great financial crisis in the traditional space. Um, and Bitcoin is more like the actual economy and real world economic activity where the altcoins are kind of like the credit default swaps on top. And what we had here was a kind of like a great financial crisis in Bitcoin where a lot of the altcoins and a lot of the um, crazy leverage and uh, what do you call it? Yield farming and all that kind of stuff blew up on top, but it took Bitcoin down with it. So um, yeah, that, that's the main point that I have there. And with this volatility, we'll see something's got to happen because historically Bitcoin does not stay at this volatility level for very long. Something happens here in very short time. So that's so all I have for down. Bitcoin. You think up? Oh, I think up. Yeah, I'm a permable. I think up and there's just not a lot of Bitcoin to sell out there in my mind. Uh, so I don't think there's very far to fall if we do fall. Yeah. I mean, if some of these companies do uh, finally, uh, you know, have to, are forced into bankruptcy or forced sellers, um, I definitely think that there's some coins that previously were not being sold that might, you know, come onto the market uh, because they're being forced to. So um, again, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, I definitely think that uh, there's a lot more headwinds still, but there's a there's an enormous amount to be bullish about. The funny thing is that what I'm talking about is not Bitcoin network fundamentals. So right. that's the beautiful thing is the net, the Bitcoin network fundamentals have been doing nothing but going up and just improving time you know day over day. So I'm not bearish in any way there, but I do think that a lot of the noise around Bitcoin is is producing headwinds and just a lot of the reality uh, on the streets. Uh, again, in fiat world is 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 pulling it down. So you talk about altcoins pulling it down. Fiat is pulling it down. <laughs> like we live in fiat clown world, and that is ultimately what is 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 kind of the the driving force in in human world right now. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, there's lots of stuff like stocks are also down, um, and they just can't quite uh, find the market activity to push them forward. But you know, I'm also a bull on stocks this year. I'm a bull in different different aspects, not just Bitcoin. So uh, that's the contrarian in me. And we'll see. We'll see what 2023 has to offer. Very early. Yeah. It's a good thing <laughs> the predictions are here live so y'all can hold this account. And uh, we, we try to hold ourselves to account as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we have a pretty damn good record here on the show. And, and Ansel has been uh, really on top of a lot of uh, major trends uh, that, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are 180 degrees wrong on, uh, you know, as things begin to shift. Absolutely. All right. So let's go into the next topic here. Should we hit the ISM data? Yep. Let's do so, it. All right. So what is uh, ISM? ISM is the U U.S. version. It's a, a like a private company, and it's the U.S. version of PMI, the Purchasers Manager Index, where they go out there and survey purchasing managers and see if they are seeing an increase in business or a decrease in business. And uh, if it's at 50, that means there's no change month to month. If it's above 50, you know, it's expanding. If it's below 50, it's contracting. Uh, so let me, Chris, if you could pull up the next slide, slide number three. 
And this is a story from Bloomberg. Manufacturing contracts for a second month. Prices ease. U.S. manufacturing activity contracted for a second month in December, capping the steepest annual slide in the key factory gauge since 2008 and helping to further tame price pressures. The Institute for Supply Management's gauge of factory activity fell to 48.4 last month, the lowest since May of 2020 and down from 49 in November, according to data released Wednesday. Readings below 50 indicate contraction. The figure was in line with the median estimate in the Bloomberg survey. Okay, The ISM index dropped 10.4 points in 2022. And if you go to the next slide, Chris, the biggest annual retreat since the Great Recession. The purchasing manager's group's measure of prices paid for materials fell for a ninth straight month, the longest stretch of declines since 74 to 75. So you can see what they're talking about here is 48.4 is the most recent reading, uh, but it has been coming down all of 2022, pretty much. And it is the longest stretch of falling prices in this or falling con uh, contracting um, ISM PMI data uh, since 1974 to 75. So that is what I have. Oh, let me, I have one more, one more uh, sentence here. Last month, the new orders and production gauges shrank with each sliding to the weakest level since May of 2020 and signaling a further softening in demand. Measures of exports and imports also contracted. And we'll be talking about exports and imports here in a second. But um, what I want to get get through on this is definitely that uh, the U.S. economy is slowing. Okay, the U.S. economy is slowing. But th these type of measurements are very hard to do when you have 9% CPI. Okay, so as CPI is growing, you have to think, okay, well, are the purchaser purchasing managers, are they thinking in nominal terms? Are they thinking in real terms? Are they thinking in volume terms? Like, how are they thinking about this? And so there can be some noise in this data, but we can see from this chart that it has been sliding and slowing uh, for all of 2022. And yeah, so that's all I have on this. CK, do you have any commentary on the purchasing managers index? Um, I mean, it seems as though things are definitely slowing down. Um, it seems as though like the, you know, the economy is less resilient and more fragile than it was prior. Um, and there's just less growth. Uh, you know, I think these are signals that things are uh, increasingly more and more broken uh, and that the central bankers uh, with their, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, monetary policy. Yeah. You know, with, with their policy, but with their interventions, that's the word I'm looking for, mm, you know, yeah, they're yeah. making things worse, uh, which is, you know, I think the Bitcoin thesis is that Bitcoin is a better monetary policy that can let humanity continue to operate, uh, without the drag of, you know, kind of centralized interventions. Um, you know, just to kind of add that things are slowing down a uh, recent interview from the CEO of Flexport. Uh, which is a big like shipping logistics company, you know, he's talking about uh, that we're definitely in a deep recession in the shipping industry, uh, which yeah. is something that we've been covering here on the podcast for a long time. Is this slowdown is something that Ansel has been signaling um, as bad news for China uh, and really interesting uh, developments in terms of demand in general, uh, as well as 
uh, kind of what's happening with globalization and the pace of globalization and impact of it, um, you know, previous or before 2020. So, um, you know, again, I, I'm personally, I, I'm not a expert when it comes to ISM or other uh, kind of producer pricing indicators, but uh, that's kind of my two cents there. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is brought to you by CrowdHealth. With open enrollment upon us, what if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you can invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can choose your doctors, put aside money for your health expenses in your own account, and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin. Right now through the end of the year, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The U.S., the percentage of GDP that comes from trade outside of North America is only 10%, where in China it's 30%. So they are much more exposed to this type of slowdown. Uh, so if we see the U.S. and the U.S. is their biggest customer, basically. So if this uh, if the U.S. is slowing down, that is going to have uh, much worse knock on effects down the road, especially when we see what's going on in China. And we have covered that uh, extensively here on the show. So great. And points. can I just say yeah. we've been early to be bearish on China. We've been bearish on China when uh, the large majority of people, including Warren Buffett, Ray Dalio, uh, etc. Max Kaiser, love Max, but he was, they're all bullish China. They're all talking about, uh, you know, this uh, fluidities trap uh, and the rising power. And we were all and us on the show are, are bearish. And now we're starting to hear a lot of really smart people talking about how bad China looks and how uh, in pain they're going to be from a shipping perspective, from the lockdown uh, from in a real estate perspective, from zero COVID and totalitarianism and how all of that is really uh, negative for China. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on China in general, Ansel. I know it wasn't yeah. um, on our agenda, but uh, you know, people are starting to turn bearish on China. I'm curious what you think. Yeah, it's starting to shift a little bit, but there's still... I would say the consensus view is still being bullish on China. Uh, just think about Zoltan Posnar. He is a interest rate analyst with Credit Suisse, and he puts out these monthly dispatches, and I go through them every once in a while on my, my own show. Uh, and he is all about the China-Russia alliance and how China, the China-Russia alliance, along with emerging markets, are going to dominate 
the world and they're going to de-dollarize and they're going to, you know, just take over, become the new hegemon. And so, yeah, that's a, and, and he's a very popular analyst out there. He's cited. Widely. Super popular. He's going to yeah. be at Bitcoin 2023 as well. So uh, oh, I know he? that a lot of hedge fund managers uh, follow him. Uh, so if you are yeah. in that space, Zoltan will be at Bitcoin 2023. We, uh, maybe we can set something up where Ansel, you can uh, challenge some oh, of his man. ideas in person. Is he speaking? Oh yeah, he's speaking. Oh wow, wow, yeah, that'll be very interesting to to hear him and what he has to say. Uh, yeah, I, I disagree with him on almost everything. I'm, there's a few things <laughs> that I, when I read through his dispatches, I agree with him on. But um, his China stuff, he's a big China bull, big Russia bull, big emerging market bull, and that is, uh, I'm polar opposite of that. But okay, um, let's let's go on to jobs data. Let's do that one. So this would be the next slide, I believe. U.S. jobs data. Yes, this is U.S. jobs data. And you can see this uh, from CNBC, the headline, payroll, private payroll growth surged by 235,000 in December, well above estimate ADP reports. So I'm going to read through a little bit of this here. Um, the jobs market closed out 2022 on a high note, with companies adding far more positions than expected in December. Payroll processing firm ADP reported Thursday today. Private payrolls rose 235,000 for the month, well ahead of the 153,000 Dow Jones estimate and the 127,000 initially reported for November. While the goods producing sector increased by a relatively meager 22,000, service providers added 213,000 jobs, led by leisure and hospitality, which added 123,000 positions. Professional and business services grew by 52,000, while education and health services added 42,000. So big, uh, big gain in number of jobs. Remember, this is number of jobs. This is not employees because the household survey is what measures the number of employees. And that has been flat for the last nine months uh, where the number of jobs continues to go up. And where are all of these jobs located? That uh, 200 of the 235,000 are in leisure and hospitality, which sounds to me a lot like second jobs. People could be getting these second jobs as, as waiters or waitresses or something to pick up a little bit of extra money uh, with the bad economy. So um Driving Uber. Driving Uber, yeah, um, all that stuff. So they also talked Instacart about Instacart delivery, like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and these, are, these are easy second jobs. You don't even have to necessarily get hired. You just sign up. Right. Uh, the stock market futures edged lower following the report as investors fear that strong jobs numbers could push the Federal Reserve to keep raising interest rates. Uh, that was an, an interesting conclusion they have. And of course, uh, I did want to bring up the FedWatch tool, but I forgot to add that image to the slide deck. Uh, the FedWatch tool right now for February 1st is the next the next uh, announcement for the Federal Reserve and their policy. Uh, it's a over 50% think it's only going to be 25 basis points, but 43% think it's going to be 50 basis points. And something like this jobs number, this puts fuel under uh, Chairman Powell's uh, ass to raise rates some more. Uh, but yeah, that's that's all I have for the jobs number. Any other thoughts, CK? I mean, the wild thing about the jobs number is 
you know, again, you're talking about the the disparity between the household survey and the the payroll growth and yeah. how that's indicating that people are taking second and third jobs. You know, I would uh, push our listeners to go check out on Reddit and type in, you know, doing multiple jobs, Reddit on Google, things like that. There are whole communities around how to do this, you know, with remote white collar jobs as well. So uh, we're seeing the most productive people, you know, take on multiple jobs. Uh, you know, maybe they're they're playing their employers, uh, but on the flip side, um, you know, these are very very productive people. These are people who are uh, making money and working at all hours. And then on the flip side, there are people who are completely unproductive, who are completely marginalized mm. by the financial system, and that's a waste and a shame. And uh, you know, it's it, it's it's going to continue to be a drag on. Um, you know, every country that's kind of suffering from this demographic shift and from, you know, an economy that just does not serve uh, the, the common person. Yeah, uh, I didn't know. I didn't know you could they had Reddit boards just for second jobs. Uh, but yeah, oh, yeah, that's it's a huge thing. That's a sign of, you know, a coming recession for sure. I, I still think that I mean, the whole structure of our economy is probably going to change because we're going to see a lot of deglobalization. We're going to see a lot of different sectors and different types of jobs. So we've been really going more and more towards service sector jobs. But if manufacturing comes back in a big way, there can be, you know, people moving over to new jobs. So uh, the next few years is going to be a big learning curve for a lot of people. Um, yeah, so... That's all I have on the jobs report. Should we talk about trade deficit? Yeah, let's talk about trade deficit. And, and if we have time before we switch over to Europe, uh, let's try to jump into uh, any of your thoughts around Fed minutes as well. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So the next one uh, is the trade deficit. And the headline is, let's see, do I have a slide for this? Yes, I do. So Slide number six, please, Chris. So the headline is trade, U.S. trade deficit unexpectedly plunges in biggest drop since global financial crisis. In a day when strong jobs data uh, has been viewed by markets as bad for risk assets as it signals continued economic strength and continued hikes, rate hikes by the Fed, we got yet another conflicting economic signal, this time from the latest U.S. trade deficit, which narrowed in November by as by much more than expected, according to the BEA. The November trade deficit narrowed to $61 billion from $77 billion in the prior month, coming in below the median estimate of $63 billion. Okay, so you can see that chart right there. I have a blown up image on the next slide to take a look at that chart. But you can see as that chart is going down, that means the trade deficit is growing. So imports are outpacing exports. But as that is coming back up now in one of the the fastest changes in the history of this number we have uh we can see that the uh exports are rising relative to imports all right let me continue on this this uh, article here remarkably the 20 percent one month decline in the deficit was the single biggest drop in the u.s trade deficit on a percentage basis going back to the global financial crisis and while it would have been welcome economic news if the drop in the deficit was the result of a surge in exports. The plunge was driven not by rising exports, but rather by shrinking imports. A telltale sign 
the, of an economic slowdown, with consumer goods, industrial supplies, capital goods, and autos all contributing to the decline, the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis said. To wit, while exports fell 2% in November, imports fell a striking 6%. So, and then they have some more details in this article, but uh, CK, what do you think about this trade deficit? Oh, and b- before I throw it back to you, uh, CK, one more thing is, um, you know, this is for GDP, for real GDP and all of that, uh, this is going to be a positive because imports are a net negative to GDP. Uh, and so when we have a trade deficit decreasing, that's going to be a boost to real GDP. And now, CK, back to you. What what do you have to say on this one? I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot to say other than, um, you know, the fact that uh, all of these indicators are contradicting is just kind of showing how broken the narrative is and uh, how much people are just kind of questioning what they're being told and the authority of the central banker in their position. Uh, they're saying all of these uh, indicators are all telling different stories that are not 100% aligned with the story that the Fed is trying to say. And I think that that is negative for the myth of the Fed, which is something that we need to break down for Bitcoin to become global money, because people need to stop believing that they have the power to make changes. And, you know, to be honest, you know, here I am doing this show. And at times, I have a heuristic that they have power to make changes. So, you know, it's something that's very much kind of ingrained in uh, psyche and a lot of people's mental models, and it's going to continue to empower the Fed, Um, you know, just to kind of add on to uh, the Great Recession uh, in the world of ocean shipping. That's the specific quote from uh, Ryan Peterson, who is Flexport CEO. Um, You know, things things are, are, are looking painful in terms of imports. Again, that's going to affect China. Um, it's really interesting to see uh, the U.S. getting more involved in importing energy uh, to, or exporting energy, I apologize. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious to see how that uh, is going impo- to impact uh, this number moving forward. You know, is there a world where the U.S. becomes a net exporter? Uh, you know, if we continue to, if we ramp up uh, local production, if we continue to export energy and uh, imports, uh, you know, continue to slide. I, I don't know if that's something that's realistic here, Ansel. A net exporter of energy. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, especially natural gas. Um, right now, U.S. oil production is about 12.3 million barrels per day. And that is rising about 1% a week over the last, uh, couple months. So we, we can see a continuation of that. And that is despite all of the harsh regulations that this current administration has put on pipelines, has put on new land, new uh, leases for explore, exploration and drilling. So despite that, we're still rising 1% a week on uh, U.S. oil production. So just imagine if things change in the future, if we get a different administration in two years or six years, what and they open up uh, the U.S. for more drilling and the pipelines and all that stuff. Just imagine. Yeah. So the U S can easily become a net energy exporter. Uh, they probably will even with all of these regulations, uh, put on them. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, some great points. I wanted to bring up the thing about the conflicting signals that you said, because yeah, we're looking at a few different things here. Some of them are like, should tell the fed 
dude, it's really, really bad. Don't keep hiking rates. You know, the economy is really bad. But then we have that one standoff, which is the employment data that we talked about. How do you square these things? Um, I think the Fed is irrationally focused on employment. Irrationally focused. For years, they had our star. That was like the, uh, what's the term? Like the ideal employment rate, the natural unemployment rate. And they wanted to get towards our star, but they never could. All of their calculations, because, you know, they are uh, ruled by formulas. They aren't ruled by actual real life prices and real life data. They're ruled by formulas. And our star was this variable in their formula that they never could hit the target on uh, for years and years. But now they've kind of abandoned our star, but still the the prime metric for uh for the Fed to stop hiking is employment. So we'll see. We'll see what happens the rest of this year. Uh, of course, my big thing is that the Fed doesn't control interest rates, which I don't have a chart this week, but um, you know, they the long-term bonds are falling. They can't control that. Uh, the four-week went down. It's I think it's still below the Fed funds range, and the that's the four-week Treasury bill. So they really can't control interest rates. Um, so. Yeah, that, that would be my response to what you said there, CK. Any any back and forth for me? No, I mean, I, I agree that they, they can't control it. And I think that the, the biggest strength they have is the fact that everyone imagines in their mental model that they do, right? And that's, mm-hmm. how, they, that's how they're moving yeah. forward with making economic calculations. So it's like one of those things is once we stop giving them power, they stop having power. And that's why I think... Um, you know, more and more people waking up to the myth and the fact that the Fed doesn't have power or control uh, is the only way that we get beyond it. We just need to break that kind of critical mass uh, of people who are who are under the illusion, if you will. Um, Ansel, do you want to jump into a little bit of FOMC kind of highlights? I know that uh, this is a little unplanned, but I know you did, as usual, read over all of that stuff as you watch the Fed. Yeah, I wanted to talk about it today, but I decided to take that uh, that bullet point out of our outline because it was just really dense. My overall s- summary is that they don't think that they will be cutting rates anytime soon. And a lot of them think that they're going to be continuing to raise rates another roughly 75 to 100 basis points uh, up to into the 5% range for the Fed funds. Uh, but if you would have asked them back in 2020, or I guess even 2021, where they would, you know, at the end of 2021, where they would be at the end of 2022, none of them would have said 4.25%. So uh, they don't know, they can't see the future, um, but they are, the sound of it is uber hawkish. So that's how I would summarize the FOMC minutes. I mean, FOMC and the Fed in 2021, uh, thanks producer Chris for highlighting um, they said, we're not even thinking about raising rates. We're yeah, not even yeah, thinking yeah. about thinking about raising rates. Uh, and, you know, see, see the 180 that we have now experienced. And again, uh, honestly, I think that the Fed is, you know, they're playing against the average person. You know, they're hurting the average American in order to get their number right. It feels a lot to me, you know, and I don't mean to kind of get away from the the fed realm but it feels a lot to me like the 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 covid response 
And, you know, mm. they're focused on one specific data point rather than looking holistically. And I think that this is one of the key things that are wrong with top-down decision-making is because that is the nature of top-down decision-making. You hone in on a KPI and you optimize for that KPI. And I think that, you know, that's a great strategy for a business that's kind of operating in a silo and, 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 and competing right. in a market, but that's not a great strategy for a massive nation state to uh, be making these kind of macro decisions around whether it's economics or whether it's health. So um, I Super think it's really point. important to, uh, to kind of highlight, you know, that symmetry there. Yeah, super good point. And, you know, when you when you aim at one data point, that data point can be interpreted so many different ways. You know, like uh, like to take the COVID example, COVID deaths. Well, do we mean with COVID or from COVID? Yeah. How many comorbidities? What were the age ranges? And, and you know, all of these things that one data point is worthless. And that's what the Fed does. You're exactly right. But the Fed does this mainly from a psychological standpoint. You know, like just think about QE when they do uh, $60 billion a month in QE. It's supposed to be quantitative, which means, you know, exact and precise and calculated, but it's a round number. And they just, it's not like $62 billion a month, one month, and, and $55 billion the, the next month. No, it's 60, 60, 60, 60. And same with these rate hikes, you know, it's just, it's not quantitative. They're just wag, uh, winging it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think they are actually, like you said, they are losing confidence a little bit from people because all of these conflicting indicators out there, what does people know by seeing all these conflicting indicators, but Powell is so confident. They know he's not confident. They know that he doesn't know what he's doing. So anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll see. It'll be exciting to see what goes on in 2023, when they pause, when they pivot, um, and all of that. So my next one, the next story I have up here is from the ECB. Just, uh, is this today? Yeah. A blog post today. Did you get a chance to read this one from Panetta? Nope. Why don't, why don't you give us the, the quick summary here? Okay. Well, I was going to read through some of this. Uh, the title is Caveat Emptor Does Not Apply to Crypto. And so the first section, he's bad-mouthing uh, crypto, and he brings up Terra USD, a stable coin that was stable in name only. Uh, and then he talks about all these failures this year. So I'll just pick up from a couple paragraphs in. These failures occurred in rapid succession, reflecting crypto players incredibly high leverage, their interconnectedness across the crypto ecosystem, and their inadequate governance structures. Yet remarkably, the crypto market route has left the financial system largely unscathed. Many, therefore, think it preferable to let crypto burn rather than regulate at the risk of legitimizing cryptos. Let me voice two important reservations about this view. First, despite their fundamental flaws, it is not certain that crypto assets will be ultimate will ultimately self-combust. Now that is a big statement right there. He said Bitcoin, I'm not going to use crypto assets, but uh, he said Bitcoin will will not ultimately self-combust. So that's a big statement from them. Continuing on, take uh, take unbacked crypto assets for instance. They do not perform any socially or economically useful function. They are rarely used for payments and do not fund consumption or investment. Of course, that's 
wrong on many levels. The Bitcoin uh, in 2022, Bitcoin processed over a trillion dollars in dollar value, uh, you know, over the Bitcoin network. So, of course, it's used quite a bit. As a form of investment, unbacked cryptos lack any intrinsic value too, which of course is wrong. They are uh, speculative assets. Investors buy them with the sole objective of selling them at a higher price. In fact, they are a gamble disguised as an investment asset. But it is precisely for this reason that we cannot expect them to disappear. And so even though he's saying this from a negative standpoint, these quotes are pretty damning. I mean, they say we, we cannot expect them to disappear. They will not self-combust, all of these things. So Bitcoin, even the ECB, the I think the biggest enemy to Bitcoin, a Bitcoin adoption or Bitcoin as legal tender or Bitcoin as a monetary standard, the biggest enemy is the ECB. And they've said twice now in this blog post that we can't expect it to disappear. We can't expect it to go away, which I think is a pretty big deal. People have always gambled in many different ways. And in the digital era, unbacked cryptos are likely to continue to be a vehicle for gambling. Second, the cost to society of an unregulated crypto industry is too high to ignore. For one, this year's crypto market meltdown caught millions of investors off guard. Uninformed investors were left with significant losses. It is not just cryptos that are being burnt. And I'll, I'll add here that, you know, where were the regulators? It's not like they're, if this is totally unregulated. Bitcoin and the Bitcoin industry falls under banking regulations. It falls under uh, securities regulations. It falls under all these things. So where were the regulators? Now, the answer is not that we messed up. Sorry, the, you know, as a regulator, we messed up and uh, it's our fault and we'll, we'll fix it. No, it's that's your guys' fault. We, we had to put more regulations on you. So uh, let's continue here. CK, stop me at any time you want to jump in. In addition, unregulated. Well, I fully agree there. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the the laughable thing is that the SEC is too focused on the ETF and they did nothing to uh, protect investors from. Uh, and even like there, there's collaboration with one of the biggest frauds in, in history and, you know, not it didn't take that much investigation to find that out. Right. You know, so pretty much sec did zero due diligence in the, in, in terms of FTX Celsius, et cetera. Uh, and on the flip side, uh, you know, the fed, the ECB, other regulators who are regulating and heavily involved in this industry, you know, there's no self-reflection, which is pretty common when it comes to, uh, regulators in general. Uh, and this is why you see the doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on bad policy before uh, complete washing out and loss of faith. Yeah, great points. I mean, we just heard, too, that when Sam Bankman was meeting with the president, they were talking about pandemic relief. Like, give me a break here. Uh, so, yeah, the regulators from the top to the bottom, they all dropped the ball on these unregistered securities, this crazy leverage that was going on in the system. Um, and they, they looked the other way. It seemingly, I mean, if you wanted to be cynical about this, you would say they looked the other way on purpose so that they can come in now and regulate even harder. But uh, let me continue with a little bit of this. To avoid the risk of regulation lagging behind because of the time needed for legislative process, regulators and supervisors need to be empowered to keep pace with 
crypto developments. And to be effective and prevent regulatory arbitrage, regulation must have a global reach. The recommendations of the Financial Stability Board for regulation and oversight of crypto assets, activities, and markets should be finalized and applied urgently, as should the rules recently published by the Basel Committee for the Treatment of Banks' Exposure to Cryptos. So first off, and I've said this before, they're pushing for global reach. They want this regulation to have global reach, uh, to have um, coordination throughout the entire world on this, right, in an era of deglobalization in an era where trust is breaking down. Um, so that is not going to happen. If they want to do this, they're going to have to go out on a limb by themselves, the ECB, and totally ban stuff and do their regulations. They're not going to get buy-in from India. They're not going to get buy-in from Indonesia, from the United States, from Mexico. They're not going to do that. They're going to have to do it on their own. So that actually, to me, is like, that's kind of a, I guess a good feeling that they want this to be global, but it's not going to be, they're not going to get that help. So I have one more sentence CK, and then I'll, I'll hand it off to you. So however, regulation and taxation alone will not be sufficient to address the shortcomings of cryptos, cryptos to build solid foundations for the digital finance ecosystem. We need risk-free and dependable digital settlement asset which can only be provided by central bank money. So I highlighted that sentence because I thought you would find that interesting, CK, that what they want is a risk-free and dependable digital settlement asset. Well, what about Bitcoin? This is the most risk-free it can get. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. It's dependable, digital settlement. But no, they have to add on a central bank money. So, okay, CK, throwing it back to you. What are your thoughts on this uh, blog post? Uh, huge LOL. And uh, I think you did a great job of uh, pointing out one where they're right about Bitcoin and then two where their uh, their remedy is impossible. Uh, you know, I guess the only thing I have to add is that yeah. Bitcoin is better at global co uh, coordination than any central bank is, than any government is. That's the whole point. It is a massive innovation in collaboration and and uh, and. Uh, coordination that does not require trust, does not require building a relationship. Uh, so uh, it has out-innovated them, right? So they can't yeah. beat Bitcoin at its own game, which is the global game, which is the global coordination game. So Bitcoin will always be a step ahead. And uh, it, it's laughable to see uh, central bankers thinking that they have this ability. <laughs> and it's even more laughable to them thinking that they are the only ones that can provide uh, a dependable digital settlement asset um, because we're in this mess because of them. So uh, they can't do so, uh, and it can only be done via Satoshi's innovation. So uh, good luck to them, uh, <laughs> but I don't think it's going to work out for their favor or how they think. Yeah, I mean, uh, communists always think that they can centrally plan everything, that they are the, they are the source of stability. And I just think it's funny when they use risk-free, well, Bitcoin is counterparty, you know, there's no counterparty risk with Bitcoin, but it is all counterparty risk when you're talking about credit-based money, 100% counterparty risk. So um, I just wanted to point that out. All right, man, no, totally. the, last, the last story I have is the German 
CPI. I don't have any slides for this, but uh, German CPI came out a couple days ago and they, the headline was, oh, it's 8.6% year on year, you know, down from 11% or something. This is a big move down. But what I didn't find in any of the mainstream media articles that I looked at, none of them were talking about the month on month number. And guess what the month on month number was for December? Negative, almost negative 1%, negative 0.8% for German CPI month on month. That is incredible. And if they've hit peak CPI and they start coming down, I mean, they're, the this type of narrative of the CPI, which we are going to get US CPI for December next week, we'll be talking about that. Um, but if CPI continues to fall and rapidly, like imagine if the US had a negative 1% month, I mean, the year on year number would drop probably to three, 4% in just a few months. So I think that's going to be a developing story here in the next six months is the CPI is just falling off a cliff. So um, and any thoughts on German CPI or uh, to sum up, I guess, final thoughts here? Well, no, hey, my, my only thought is that Ansel has been, this has been Ansel's latest kind of tip is uh, month over month being a much better indicator than annual CPI numbers, annuals, what everyone uses, unfortunately. Uh, and, uh, you know, Ansel has been talking about CPI going down. So I think we should just leave it there. Y'all keep, att pay attention to month over month CPI. Uh, and it'll be very interesting to see what the central bank narratives are going to be if CPI continues to fall uh, and they can no longer uh, say that, you know, they're fighting CPI and fighting inflation. Um, but that's all I got y'all. It's been a great week. It's been a hectic week. I think, I feel like winter is kind of thawing here uh, in, in the, in North America a little bit. Uh, I feel like everyone is kind of getting back from the holidays. So I'm excited for the energy of next week. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people here in Nashville for what's going down at Bitcoin Park. There's a nice mining summit. So if you're going to be in Nashville, hit me up. Uh, but if you want to come to the ultimate event for Bitcoiners to gather at, that has to be the Bitcoin conference, May 18th through the 20th. So I'll definitely see you there. And uh, I think Ansel will be seeing you guys next week. Uh, I will be doing some travel. So likely Nolan will be joining for that show. Uh, will be very interesting to, to talk about US CPI numbers with Ansel and Nolan. I got one more uh, housekeeping item here at the end. We did switch our podcast feed. Uh, so we were at a, on a standalone podcast for this FedWatch. We joined the Bitcoin Magazine podcast feed. So you can find that on Anchor. You can find it on Spotify, of course, all the podcast apps. So make sure that you are, if you want to get the podcast version of this, that you guys are signed up uh, to the Bitcoin Magazine feed. And also, I want to invite people out to Bitcoin Day uh, in Naples coming up this month. I think it's I think it's the twenty first. Uh, now it might be the twenty second, but it's it's twenty first or twenty second. They're in Naples, Florida. I'll be speaking with Greg Foss. It's a great one day event, a very cozy event where there's only a hundred, two hundred people that come and show up, but you get to talk directly with. Uh, those people, instead of seeing them on a big stage, they're right down there with you. Um, so check out BitcoinDay.io and I'll see you there. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. 
Also check out bitcoinandmarkets.com where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. Bitcoin is for everyone. Lefties, righties, and rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin Magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It featured articles by President Naya Bukele, Jeff Deist, Beauty On, Natalie Smolensky, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy at your local Barnes & Noble's bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at store.bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.